Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Hey everybody, welcome to Profiling Evil Podcast. In this uh, special edition that I'm calling Prosecutor Going Primetime, please welcome Emmy Award-winning journalist and court TV anchor, Mr. Vinnie Politan. Vinny, welcome to the program. Great to see you, Mike. Well, it, it's, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast, knowing actually that you have a full-time job and plenty to do. Uh, you're on the air like almost every night. Can you give us an idea of what your schedule kind of looks like, how much time you have to spend preparing for a, uh, an episode, how many hours you're on television each week? Just kind of give us a feel for what life's like for Vinny. Yeah, well, it's it's 15 hours a week of live unscripted television covering, uh, you know, a multitude of stories. So it, it's pretty intense. It's not the most intense schedule I've had in my career. Um, and I think everything I did before that prepared me for this. Um, but basically, my, my day starts early. You know, you wake up, you just got to check in to see what's happening, right? And if we're in the middle of covering a trial, you kind of dip into the trial to see what see what is going on, check all your emails, everything else. But for me, our show is from 8 to 11 o'clock every night. So it's important that I don't burn myself out prior to being on the air. And, and, and that's actually very important because you've got to peak when you're on the air. And, and you know, I mean, you've got to be thinking and talking and understanding everything that you're doing and, and bringing the energy. So, um, you know, I kind of start the day off early, just checking just to see how things are going. But really, the day starts in earnest uh, with our two o'clock call. We have a two o'clock call every day um, to kind of see where the show is going. You know, what stories are happening? What do we think will happen a little bit later on in the day? Uh, meet with producers and editors and our associate producers and kind of sketch things out. But as you know, in the world of news and in trials and everything else, Things can change, but we're prepared for that. We're prepared for that. But we kind of lay out the show then, and then I start doing all the pre-recorded parts of the show that I have to do. But I do it all from home now. I mean, this whole uh, shutdown has kind of retrained the way you can do it. So uh, you know the technology is amazing that you can use from home. So I'm able to record a lot of the things that I have to do uh, that appear on the air from home. And I'm able to um, work with producers in, in figuring out the angles and the approach that we want, figure out the guesting for the show, and do all the tweaks from home. And then about two and a half hours before the show, uh, I get ready. I commute down to the studio. I get in there. And then we have our final meeting uh, before the show to make sure everything that we set up earlier in the day is still lined up for that night. If there are changes, we make those adjustments. Um, if we have to change the lead of the story, uh, if something else has happened, then then we do it then. And we make sure all our great guests like you are, are still on schedule and, and will be able to appear uh, so we don't have to change much. But it's an intense day. I mean, by the time you get to Friday, 
at the end of the Friday show, you're you're like done because you know you hit your peak during the show, and then it's it's bedtime, but you can't go to sleep right away, right? I you're mean, you're pretty just, wrapped up. You're, you're wrapped up from everything that 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 went into that show and the things that came out, the things that you learned, and and you're already thinking about tomorrow's show. So at the end of the show, yeah, we have a quick meeting to say, hey, here's kind of what we're thinking about for tomorrow, but. Please, everyone, get some sleep because we got to do this again tomorrow. You still got to take the garbage out, right? I mean, you're you're a dad and you you got a life and you're trying to also get some balance in things. Uh, and you know, gratefully, you got a lot of support staff. But does your mind ever stop spinning about what what's the next angle I've got to I've got to approach this by? Uh, I, I make sure you do that because if you don't, I mean, when when the COVID shutdown first hit. And we weren't able to, you know, people were very tenuous. You know, what are we going to do? What what else are we allowed to do? We can't do anything else. So at that point, I was actually doing the show from home. And my son, who is a a digital production major at Florida State University, um, was, was helping me in the studio. He became the intern. So it was just me and him. And what I found, because there was no other part of our lives that we were living that I was waking up and going from you know 9 a.m. to 11 p.m. day after day and did that for about three and a half months. And I was like, I can't do you, you can't do it because it ends up impacting your performance on the air, especially on my show, because it's, it's unscripted. So I've got to be sharp. I've got to be thinking. I've got to remember. And if I am the most tired at the most important part of my day, uh, it's a problem. So. What I what I sort of made the adjustment was I forced myself to not get as deeply involved. Like I said, I wake up, you check, you see what's happening, and you kind of have an eye on it. If there's a hearing or something's happening in court that I need to watch, I'll watch it or listen to it, maybe while I'm taking a walk around the lake, maybe while I'm working out, uh, you know, in my home gym, because I'm still not going back to the regular gym. So I've tried to make sure that I've added those other parts to my day. So it doesn't become just a, a never-ending cycle. It was like it was like Groundhog Day. Like you would you would go from nine in the morning to eleven o'clock. Then you go to sleep. You wake up. Boom! I'm back on a Zoom call and I'm thinking about the the show for that's coming up. You know, in in eleven hours. And I but I just finished the show just 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 before I fell asleep. So um, I got out of that routine and, and got into a more sustainable routine, making the adjustments. Because when you work from home, I think all the bosses around the country are realizing you end up working harder and longer hours. So um, I had to (laughs) purposely make sure that I'm doing something else. And I do that through exercise and obviously um, spend time with my wife and my son uh, also was doing some. It's like a mixture. Sometimes they're in school, sometimes they're home. So there's that part of the life that is kind of in the front end. The way I look at it is is like my day is upside down. Like most people, their day's over, they go home, they have dinner, they do this, they do that. I have to do all that before I go to work. Hey, um, so, you know, this really amazes me because when I think about uh, your show, and, and again, I can't thank you enough for the chance I've had to, to be on the show with you and watch you in action, but you got to have a, a backup plan all the time, don't you? I mean, uh, uh, this, this Chauvin case going on right now is a perfect example. Earlier in the week, all of a sudden we hear, Oh, they they may postpone jury selection. Well, what happens when you've been preparing for uh, six hours before your show springs, and they say, "Hey, we're gonna 
we're going to go into court recess or something. Right. We always have a backup plan for, for two reasons. One, you, you are 1,000% right. When you're covering trials and your network is focused on covering trials, I as a lawyer and now all the producers, now that they've been in this, they realize how tenuous every trial is because at any moment anything can happen and it can just go away. You could, you could, and, and, and it's not just a problem for me, it's a problem for the, not a problem, but it's an issue for the entire network because we have a network that does gavel to gavel coverage. Well, what happens when the when the, when the gavel's not being hit for that day because the juror is sick? And, oh, no court today. We'll come back on Wednesday. What? Well, what are we going to do for the next 14 hours? So we always have a plan B. Um, the, the beauty of covering trials, number one, is that it's different than covering regular news of the day. Because I've done that as well. When you cover news of the day, it's stories of the day. It's all right, what just happened, let's report it. What just happened, let's report it. But a trial is is a complete, um, 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 the best way I could put it to describe it is it's like a complete work, right? What happens one day in a trial is important, but it's no more or less important than what happened three days ago. And both sides have to put all these pieces together. So when you're covering a trial, you have to put those pieces together as well for the viewer. Because what someone is testifying about on day six may be very relevant because of something that was testified to in day one. So we're always yeah. putting that together to string it together for the for the viewer so they understand what is happening and why it's happening. And for us, um, that's the built-in beauty of covering trials because if you have a day where all of a sudden there's not going to be any testimony because something happened and, all right, yeah, we'll be come back tomorrow, is we can go back to those other parts of the trial and analyze what happened um, and talk about how it's important for what's going to happen on Wednesday when they get back into court. So you're always putting the pieces together because you can't look at a trial like this. A trial you have to look at like this because um, that's ultimately what the what the prosecutor and defense attorney will do in their closing arguments is take all those pieces from all different parts of the trial and bring them together for the jury. We do that every day while we cover the trial. Uh, so it, it's... It's, you know, having that skill of being a, a former prosecutor comes in very handy when I'm when I'm covering this, because every day on the air, I'm thinking about closing arguments and what are they going to say? And, 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 and everything that happens during the trial leads to that moment and, and leads to what the jury is going to hear at the end and how the jury is going to have to put it all together as well. Perfect, because I wanted to take a second and let everybody know a little bit about your background. And 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 folks, Vinny uh, Politan is a lawyer and a former prosecutor. And you know how uh, dear, near prosecutors are to my heart, Vinny. But uh, you've been covering the world of crime uh, and justice for like uh, more than two decades. You, uh, you've been on uh, HLN, Headline News. You, you've worked for uh, XM Radio. Uh, you've done you've done anchor work at, at big stations like NBC in Atlanta, uh, and and this one I love is you actually even did a Broadway stint on tw on Twelve Angry Men, uh, which I got to say is my father in law's all time favorite film. And whenever that black and white pops up, I think of Pop, and I just wish he was still around so I could chat with him. Yeah, so. Here's the thing, with my life, what I've been able to do is kind of put together a couple of different passions that I've had. And uh, the beauty of where I am now is, is I'm not looking like, where do I want to go next? You know, 
Because a lot of people in your career, you're like, what's the next step? And I'm like, well, I'm kind of happy where I am. I just want to grow where I am, which is which is which is fantastic that Court TV exists. But um, yeah, I grew up. Uh, my my father was a lawyer, then he became a federal judge. My older brother uh, became a lawyer, and me growing up, I was the kid that always had a microphone or a camera in his hand, whether it was uh, my cassette deck, right, my my Super 8 camera. Then I had like this VHS camera when I was a junior in high school. I was so excited. And I'm recording my friends and directing them. And I'm recording myself. And, you know, my parents always knew I had that kind of bug to do that. Uh, and went to college. I went to Stanford and studied communication. So that was always the track I was on. But there were two men who had the most influence in, in, in the world on me. The two men I respect the most, which is my father and my older brother. And they were in this club. You know, this law club. And, and when, you know, the family, when we'd get together, which is like all the time, you know, they'd have their little discussion going on. And I'd kind of like, ah, you know, I kind of want to be a part of that. I also was all, always fascinated with, with courtrooms and that the, the trying of a case where you get in there and you make your arguments and you, you know, all of the movies that we've all seen were the ones that influenced me. You know, Al Pacino, you know, I'm out of order. You're out of order. This whole system's out of order. I mean, all of that has influenced me. Growing up watching uh, a, a Kojak and, and cop shows. So yeah. the crime and justice I was always drawn to. I've got this legal influence, and, and, and I always have a microphone in my hand. So I went to law school. It shocked my parents. Absolutely shocked. Bitter, um, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely shocked them. And, and, and I, but they've never told me what to do. They never told me what not to do. You, you, you find your own way. They support you a thousand percent, whatever your choice is. So I initially became a prosecutor, and that was great. But there's one downside to being a prosecutor. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's all about you know everything that you want in life, is that it was very predictable how much money you were going to earn, what your career track could be. And to be like the head prosecutor was a political appointment. In New Jersey, you don't run for it. You, you get appointed by the governor, but you got to be like in the world of politics, and that's one thing I've, I don't, I, I don't like, I don't, I've never been drawn to politics, even though I was president of the student council, okay, West Orange High School. <laughs> I don't like. I, I, you also played basketball there too, so. That's right. Well, here's here's the problem. I just don't want to be part of politics. So I looked at the career as a prosecutor, the limitations, the predictability, and. I'll be honest with you, they just don't make a lot of money. They, they don't make a lot of money. But on top of that, that's the only job you can have statutorily as a prosecutor because of the potential conflicts of interest. Even if you wanted to make some money on the side, you weren't supposed to. And I'm a guy who unfortunately follows the rules. So if I was going to be a career prosecutor, I knew how much money I was going to make five years down the road, 10 years down the road, fifth, and, and there was no opportunity to do anything else. Right. To, to, so I knew I couldn't do that forever. So I went and became, went into private practice. And, and that's when I kind of hit the wall, because when I learned what the private practice was really about in terms of success, it was about at the end of the year. I'll never forget my first year. The, the you know, you fill out these timesheets for you know, all the work that you do for all the different clients so they can bill them. And then it was the end of the first year, and I was being, you know, an evaluation on, you know, all right, you know, like a review. How did you do this year? And the lead partner, I, or the partner I worked for, 
uh, wonderful man, loved him, learned a lot from him. But basically, he opened up a spreadsheet and said, ah, 2,200 hours. That's a good year. A good year for who? Not for me. But your soul, <laughs> the sole basis of your of your value was how many hours you build. Yeah. And I was like, ah, that was kind of icky. That was a little icky for me. And I also saw long-term success, financial success in, in private practice was, could you bring clients in? It wasn't, were you a good trial lawyer? Were you a good litigator? But if you work at a big firm, and I worked at a relatively big firm in New Jersey, the key was, could you bring in clients? And that was, to me, that's almost like politics. That's like the world of schmoozing. That's not me. I'm not the schmoozer who goes out there and, you know, tries to get somebody to, you know, hey, yeah, give me your business and, you know, I'll take care of you. I'll take you out to dinner. That's not me. That's not, and, and that's, and, and it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not me. Then can I tell you the moment that everything changed? Yeah. All right. So I'm married. I have a child. Okay. And so I've got responsibility. I'm working as a lawyer and I'm making good money. All right. And I'm, and the television is on in the background and I hear a voice. It's uh, ABC nightly news. Uh, it's Peter Jennings is the anchor. Um, but I hear a voice and I'm like, wait a minute. I recognize that voice. I go over to the television and on the screen giving a report is a woman named Juju Chang, who has been an incredible journalist for many years. But this is about like 10 years after college. I'm like, wait a minute. She did it. She did it. Juju Chang and I went to college together. We both were communication majors. We both worked at the radio station. I mean, all this. And, and her career, she went directly to television, did it. And boom, there she is on Nightly News. And then I said, that's it. I'm doing it. It was just, it was like, it was that moment. Now, uh, and, and Juju was my inspiration. It wasn't like, oh, Juju could do it. I could do it. It was like, no. It was like, wow, she did it. I'm going to do it. And, and and then you get to the point where you've got to explain that to your wife, right? <laughs> and then you got to yeah. break the news and break the news to, to your, your, your parents and your father, who's the federal judge, who, uh, you know... <laughs> And, and that was the most amazing part. I mean, the, the the support that you got from the family, because I took that job as being a lawyer to the first TV job, which I had to claw and scratch to get, was literally $10 an hour. I'm married. Holy cow. Children, $10 an hour from, you know, six figures as a lawyer. But I did it. And my wife was... 1,000% behind me. And wow. I went to tell my parents. And then my mother said the one thing that just, it just, it just gave me such a rush of adrenaline and, and, and has driven me since is she said, thank God. We always knew that's what you should have done. And, and really? thank God you're going to do it. And it was an amazing moment. Every time I think about it, I, I, I get, you know, re, re invigorated to do what I'm doing. But to have that level of support, and, and and the lesson that taught me as a father is, wow, wow. Like, my parents never told me what to do, what not to do. They kind of let me, like I said, make you find your way, supported me either way. But then when I made the choice for the thing that they knew, my mother knew I should be doing, she let me know. And just those, 
those two words, thank God and the way she said it, I knew I was doing the right thing. And I knew I could have success. And, you know, you work hard. You get some favors from friends. You know, $10 an hour wasn't going to cut it. I worked weekends and, and early mornings and late nights for a good friend of mine as who was general counsel at a supermarket chain. I said, can you give me any work? He says, yeah, actually, I need some oh, help. Good. Here, just, you know, we'll, we'll set something up. So, yeah, you do a full-time job of television, and then you work another 30 hours uh, doing legal work to make ends meet, to make it happen. And, and eventually, you know, everything came together when I was able to uh, finally be part of Court TV. So it's not like I didn't waste the whole legal background. Like, you know, I didn't waste the education or the years. I just put everything together for a very unique place where I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And my mother, uh, you know, who, who, who we lost, but my mother knows and knew exactly what I should be doing. So that's that's. I mean, that's the definition of exactly what, where you want to be and what you want to be doing. What a great example of what a parent should do, which is rudder and and then uh, just find joy in what your kids are doing. That's that's so cool. Congratulations. I, so here's the question I've got. Number one, are you still paying your bar uh, dues so you, you're still keeping your license up or do you? No. So, so Look, like I I'm retired. <laughs> So, so I had this mindset always that like, uh, when I, when I retired, uh, I, I did almost 28 years and, and, uh, when I retired and went to work for Esri, the chief said, Hey, I think you need to just keep doing your training hours. Cause you'll be back. Well, that's been 15 years. I have no intention of ever going back, but for some reason I hang on to that police certification in the state thinking, and there's no way I'd, I mean, this is a young man's sport. There's no way I'd want to go do that thing again. But did you ever think about being a cop, Vinny, when you were making that transition? Well, here's no. My dream was never to be a police officer like in the real world. My dream was to be a, a, a TV cop like Kojak or, or not Barney Fife, but um, to, to do that. And, and I got the opportunity to do that in uh, Law and Order uh, one episode. I had the producer on my radio show and I said, you know, and I put him on the spot live on the air. I said, you know, there was a young kid who had a dream and his dream was to be a police officer, but not a not a not a real police officer who, you know, has to carry a gun and, and people will shoot at. But like one on TV, can you make that young man's dream come true? And he said, well, we're shooting our last episode of the season tomorrow. Are you available? I said, yes, I am. And I was just it's just an extra on the scene, you know, opening scene of Law and Order. But it, it was a thrill. But no, and the reason I, you know, I, one of my rules is safety first, Mike, <laughs> that I've lived my life by, and I could never do what you did. I, and, and I admitted on the air that I could never do it uh, when I have members of law enforcement or, or members of, you know, the armed services on. I, I let them know that you're doing something that I, I couldn't do. And I don't know if, if they tried to draft you into the police department or draft you into the army. I don't know how I, I could have responded because I don't have that. I, I just have this <laughs> this fear and, it, and it's, it's the safety thing. And I just know how dangerous those jobs are. And honestly, I don't think I, I really don't think I could do it. Well, I'll tell you what, um, it, it has been such a, an honor to sit on your show and at times have you kind of put the pressure on me about like, what do you think and what would you do right now? And, uh, and I would, again, I would hate to be a police officer in today's environment. 
under the pressures they're under, even the internal pressures of, of this feeling that many officers tell me they have that they don't even believe their, their administrations would back them up. Um, I, I mean, let's, let's just talk about that a little bit for a moment. Uh, have, we, have we swung this pun, pendulum so wide that you think it'll start coming back to where we let police officers do their job, hopefully learning from all of this. But de-escalation, while absolutely perfect in theory, kind of scares the wits out of me because it puts officers at risk and they need to go home to their family too. Absolutely. I think the pendulum starts to swing back as we're seeing the uh, crime numbers continue to rise and things become unsafe for the public. At some point, something will click. And there's an there's an obvious middle ground to all of this. There's a I mean it's it's, it's blatantly obvious where it is, um, but there there's so many pressures right now. So I, I think it will. I think it'll it'll swing back. You know, and, and I appreciate you coming on the show for for our crime time segment um, regularly because part of the the reason that I think it's so important to do is we show real police videos. So yeah. what I'm trying to convey to the audience is what's really happening, right? Like, like you, you read, you, you read a headline, you see a clip of a citizen video and you're like, Oh my goodness. What? Well, we try to tell the whole story and the variety of the stories to try to paint a more realistic picture of what policing is day in and day out. And, and, you know, on, on the show, we'll show those heroic rescues and we'll show some of the, the stories that are popping up in headlines that are creating some controversy. Sometimes when we dig into them, you see, oh, well, wait a minute. This is what was really happening there. So, And, and when I have uh, experts like you come on to take us into the mindset and, and point out things that aren't obvious to the public, I think it becomes very useful. The other thing that's interesting is we have a variety of, of uh, law enforcement guests on. And not all law enforcement officers see everything exactly the same. And, and sometimes uh, uh, one s- situation or scenario, uh, one, one, one person will be seeing it one way and someone else will point out something else is happening. And we talk about solutions and, and is there anything that could have been done better or, or what are they thinking? Why are they doing this? And, and the one reaction to the George Floyd case that I thought was the exact wrong reaction was when all police shows were taken off the air. And, and we saw that uh, across the board. I mean, nobody would put a, a police show on with police videos, and we're putting on real uh, police videos each night, you know, body cams that are released, surveillance videos that are released. So I think the real downside to what happened in the aftermath uh, of the George Floyd uh, death was that all police shows disappeared off of the air and, and were canceled. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, this is the wrong time to do that. Now is when we need more transparency, and we need to talk more about it. And I think that's why it's important, the the segment that we do every night uh, on the show, where we bring in members of law enforcement and talk about real situations and and real cases and the real work they do day in and day out, becomes even more important. I didn't understand that that reaction, that we just are going to, all right, we don't want to see police officers. No, now we want to see them even more. We want to talk to them even more. We want to understand them even more. And we want to talk about different situations that are happening each day across America. And that's what we do every night. And having guests like you on is incredibly valuable, I think, uh, to, to the conversation and, and to everyone's knowledge about this 
it's the most important issue that's happening right now in our country. And why would we stop talking about it? If it's the most, we should be talking about it more. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and law enforcement doesn't like when law enforcement makes poor choices, especially when they're criminal choices. I mean, we're, we're, we're the first to stand up and say, no, there's got to be accountability for that. Uh, I absolutely love the crime time segment and uh, your team as they figure out what those segments are that you watch should really be complimented. So, so thanks so much for the opportunity to participate there. But you also have another one that I love and I've had the chance to appear on uh, once and that is unsolved case files. What, what caused you to introduce that now into your lineup and, and uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, this is uh, turning out to be an incredible segment with some incredible moments happening on it. Um, so Court TV is part of Scripps, and Scripps is a, a big company that owns a lot of television stations around the country. And what I realized uh, when we put together our, our crime time segment is we were using, we were going through and, and, and getting help from all of the, you know, these 50 stations around the country that create incredible content and cover stories, you know, in, in, in cities, you know, Ohio, uh, Utah, Texas, wherever it is. I mean, we are everywhere. And all these stories are being highlighted locally. Um, but I think there's a there's a national audience for them. So it started with, with Crime Time and some of the stories they were covering, we've kind of plucked out. And I said, well, wait a minute. These a lot of these stations um, in every city has, you know, dozens and dozens of of unsolved mysteries, cases where families are looking for justice, where investigators could use a little help by shining a, you know, a spotlight on the case. And, you know, some of them, yes, are local in nature, but other ones, you know, people have moved around the nation. And I was like, here's an opportunity for us to do two things. Number one tell um, incredible stories, but also maybe, just maybe, bring some attention to these stories so investigators might get that tip and, and the family might get a chance at justice. And we bring on folks like you who can talk about it and approach it from another angle. And, and the more you talk about these cases, and the more there's they're highlighted cases that have been unsolved for whether it's one year or 25 or 40 years, the break can always come for, for some reason. And I've seen it in my career on television and in broadcasting that it can happen as a result of pressure and 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 the coverage from different outlets. I mean, we've seen this happens a lot with podcasts, by the way. And I think you know that, um, that a, a podcast will take a deep dive into a story. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's talking about it. And guess who else is talking about it? The people who might know a little something about it. And it has helped people come forward, um, people realizing they know something that they didn't realize could actually help. So that was really the inspiration for it, was to was to take these stories that are out there, that, that are part of our parent company, and put a national spotlight on them, uh, which can only help, which can only help. And the, the stations we have around the country have done incredible work um, and, and details. And the other part of it is a lot of the family members were able to get on. The investigators are coming on as well to talk about it. 
So I think we're getting really insight into what's going on in these cases. And each one of them is so different. And many of them are like this close. Like, you know, they're this close. They just need that, that little piece so they can hand it over to prosecutors like I was and bring the case to trial and get that justice for the family. You know, uh, I, I think you're dead on. And I was so honored to be with a mom of a missing child uh, on your show a few weeks ago where we, we talked about it. The, the, the one thing that is consistent, and I've seen it through my career, I've seen it since I started doing this, is that their pain and ache never goes away. I lost a, a dog once, and I never quit looking for that dog. I mean, even today, that dog's been gone for 30 years, but I'm still looking for a dog at that same age range and looks the same scrappy way walking down the road. Could you imagine a child missing one of your children like that? No. And, you know, for for all these victims and, and, and their families, you know, they and this is what I've said throughout my career at Court TV, because, you know, when I began at Court TV, I was a correspondent and I was going from courtroom to courtroom and you're in there and you meet these families and you see the look in their eyes as they're going through this whole process where the person who has taken the life of their loved one is now on trial. They're totally lost. Um, they're in this trial thing and it's like they're reliving everything, but they've got this look in their eyes like they they need something. And we all know they're, they're not going to get what I call closure because their loved one's not coming back. Their loved one is dead. The only thing that they can get that is, is some sense of justice. So when they're in our system and, and there's been an arrest and there's going to be a trial, that's what they cling to. And that's what gives them a, a little bit of comfort. But it's, but it's a tenuous comfort because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And that's why, you know, in, in a case where I've seen the evidence and I'm convinced they've got the right person, my fingers are crossed for that family. Because imagine this, imagine losing a loved one, you're never going to get back. And then the person you believe did it is not convicted and, and what that is like and, and what that can do. And, and to me, the biggest example on camera that I've ever seen, and this was right before I made that switch, I was still a lawyer at the time, was um, Mr. Goldman in the OJ trial. When that verdict's read and that camera pans and you see the reaction when he's just realized what is obvious to many people like me based upon the evidence at trial. And I know they had problems. I know there were problems with, with the trial. Um, but come on, the DNA. Uh, really? I mean, we're not going to get into that right now. But the look in his eyes. And I've, and I've had an opportunity since then to speak with him. And what we saw in his face and his eyes is exactly what he was feeling. And it's, you're just stripped. You know, your son was taken in a violent way. And the person you believe is responsible and that another court found is responsible um, was found not guilty. So they didn't even get the justice, not even the justice. So that's like a double whammy. So um, that's that's and, and that's what you're seeing with with families in these unsolved cases. Right now, they're in that mode where they, they they're not getting their loved one back, but they're not even getting a sense of justice, which is the only thing that they have left. You know, I, I um, had an email this morning, uh, Laura Saxton at the end of the Dante Lucas trial. Uh, and, and I um, 
have been working with that investigator for the last year that that worked that case, just kind of on the side, sharing some thoughts and ideas. And uh, Laura this morning uh, sent an email and just said exactly what was said on the news a couple of days ago, that Kelsey might be able to finally rest, but I never will. And now what do I do? Because, you know, it's it's over. And uh, holy cow, I, the, you, you look at that and you think about the pain of that and that they've got to somehow find meaning. Uh, the, the, there's no no winners even when they win in court, is there? No, there there aren't. But but to think of the inverse. Think, yeah. And I understand where she is now. What if that jury came back and said, Dante Lucas, you're not guilty. Have a nice day. That would that would take her to an even worse place. She's never going to be in a great place. So there's no, there's not that closure, right? That closure doesn't exist. Um, the only thing that we that our system can do is 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 give the uh, victim's family some sense of justice. So hopefully she has that. But her case also unique because right, Kelsey's never been found. Yeah. So that's that's still that that's makes it even worse, right? Because you don't know exactly where she is and you, you have that that sense. You know, many victims, they, they find a body and there, unfortunately, you find out in court exactly what happened to your loved one too, which is difficult um, when that part of the, of the trial takes place and you learn from the autopsy and from investigators at the scene and the crime scene photos and everything else, that's tough. Um, she has spared that, but that's not really a consolation because... She still has unanswered questions about, well, where is she and, and what exactly happened? Well, you know, um, and, and as our time winds down, you have been in the courtroom. You've been the prosecutor. Um, what did you think when all of a sudden, a week before you plan on putting on a, a witness who's going to testify that Dante personally told you he killed Kelsey, is killed in a, a domestic violence <laughs> Uh, murder in uh, Denver, and she's not going to testify. I mean, what what did you think when that piece of information came out? When that piece of information came out, you know, you're all of a sudden you're putting two and two together, saying, "Wait a minute, this is." I don't believe, generally speaking, I don't believe in coincidences, right? Yeah. I think that's a, a good rule of thumb. Don't believe in coincidences. Be skeptical. Take a look at it. Um, but that, I thought that was going to be a devastating blow for prosecutors because uh, this case. While they had great circumstantial evidence, you don't know how every juror, because they all have to agree, right? we could never lose sight of that. It's got to be unanimous guilty verdict, right? Otherwise, you got to come back and do it again. And someone could be held up on that. And if you have that confession, and then it coincides with all the other circumstantial evidence, so much more confidence and, and your your closing argument can be so much stronger. And you can say, Ladies and gentlemen, you heard on the stand exactly you know what was going on. So you so it's easier for you know it'll be easier for that jury to have comfort in circumstantial evidence. You know, sometimes they're a little skittish about uh, uh, circumstantial evidence. I love circumstantial evidence. I think it's better than direct evidence most of the time. Because most direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. There you go. And you know and I know how you can have something happen, five people saw it, and five people saw five different things. You know, what color was the hat, what color was the car, which direction were they going, da, da, da. All. So that's direct evidence. Circumstantial evidence is stuff like DNA. DNA is circumstantial evidence because it's not direct evidence of, of a murder. It's evidence that, hey, someone's DNA was here, which you can place the person there, and that's a circumstance. So 
I love circumstantial evidence, but I know the way defense attorneys attack it in front of a jury, and I know the way some jurors interpret that word, ah, it's merely circumstantial. And no, circumstantial is actually good evidence, but when you have the direct evidence of a an alleged confession, you're much you're you're on steadier ground because you can say this isn't just a circumstantial case. We have direct evidence. The defendant himself told her, but she gets murdered in the middle of a murder trial. Wow! Great job by prosecutors putting it all together. It took you know it took a bunch of years, but they did it, and and hats off to them. Oh, yeah. I, in fact, I, I think it brings great hope in other cases like Suzanne Morphew and others, because it takes a lot of courage for a prosecutor to go after a circumstantial case. And, and yet I'm with you 100 percent. I used to challenge cops in training sessions. I'd say, what color is a light blue Chevy pickup at two o'clock in the morning under a street light? Well, the problem is it's still light blue, but you know, based on people's perceptions and everything else, their biases, we could get so many rabbit holes that we would go down that uh, it's incredible. But um, th- this this has been something that's been really interesting to watch. I, I'll tell you what, uh, I, I guess one of the things I wanted to just kind of close with, Vinny, was – you know, I had the I had the pleasure of serving with prosecutors all my career. I, I, uh, I it was a special position to work in an attorney general's office and to be able to do that. I am so grateful for the perspective that you bring to reporting and the way in which you even sometimes when it's uncomfortable challenge me with questions that that I have to respond to. But um, when you think about something like the George Floyd case that that's so hot right now. What are the things we need to watch for in the next couple of weeks? Um, this and the prosecutor himself, the attorney general, Keith Ellison, has said it and we've played it on the air many times. It's not an easy case. It's going to be tough to get a conviction. And um, for people who are seeking and looking for justice, um, I'm always interested in what their definition is, because He's facing several charges here, and the top charge is second degree, and they all require a different mental state. There are two challenges that you need to watch for in this case for prosecutors. The first is the cause of death. How did George Floyd die? Prosecutors have to prove that. That's an element of the crime. They have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's not just, yeah, this is what caused his death, and yeah, it could have been that, but it's not. They've got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, and to... Um, get to that level is going to be a challenge here because of all the other issues involving the toxicology, the drugs, and the experts. That's number one. Number two is to uh, keep an eye on how do they prove what Derek Chauvin, the former officer, was thinking at the time that his knee is on his neck. What is his intent? Does he have any intent? And his state of mind is crucial for all the different uh, uh, crimes that he's been charged with. And I would just leave with this, saying that for anyone who looks at that case and, and, and wants justice for George Floyd, I would define justice in this case as a conviction of any crime. Any crime. Because it's, it's, it's a tough, tough road for prosecutors here. And it may be the manslaughter, it may be a third degree, it may be a secondary. We don't know where the jury will end up in all of this. But at the end of the day, a conviction is justice and is a victory for prosecutors.
Folks, I want to thank Vinny Politan of Court TV. Not only because I kind of call him my friend now, but for taking time out of your schedule, Vinny. It is so, um, so deeply appreciated by me. I also want to personally thank you for the chance I have to come on your show. And I want you to thank your dad for serving and thank you for serving. Uh, I guess the biggest question I got is, will you come back sometime? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just have to come down here to my basement. Well, it's it is it has been a pleasure, folks. I hope that you'll hit the subscribe button so that you get notified when new content comes out. And uh, to all of us at Profiling Evil, Vinny, thanks so much. Please tell your team how much we appreciate them. And uh, and I'm going to give you the final word because you usually have it anyway. Absolutely, folks. That's it for now. Have a great great day. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. Thanks, Vinny. Thanks for listening to the Profiling Evil podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please, don't forget to go to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of the hundreds of videos we've created. Now, if you're looking for a great crime story, check out my new book, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. You can find it at profilingevil.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for our elite newsletter, the Bolo. I'm Mike King, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.